Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss market events while having a few beers. My name is Boa Shoshan and I'm joined as ever by Sam Volkering. Sam, how are you getting on this fine Friday afternoon? It's nice to be back again uh, on what is two episodes now in a singular week. Uh, unheard of of for our for our podcast, but... Here we are just days later, feels like an eternity, but it's been days. Um, and we actually still have quite a bit to talk about, funnily enough. This is true. This is very true. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of topics to cover. There were a couple I wanted to cover in our last one, but just didn't get around to. Ah. Uh, oh. Because, you know, we just we just ended up talking about other things. Um, yeah, there are, and we did actually, there was something that a, a, a listener did want us to cover as well, which we will get around to. Uh, yeah, where to begin, Sam? So, I mean, we did, we did ask the question, or rather, I asked the question, and you were not too interested in the question uh, a couple of days ago of who rugged El Salvador, ah, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, there is, a, there is another trend that we were kind of, we floated around, sort of edged around. Uh, over the past few episodes were Orca and that, which was the rise of Solana. Yeah. And Solana has a, you know, I've been interested in Solana for a long time, don't own any Solana. My play on Solana is just owning owning that Orca token. No investment advice we're giving in this podcast. This is just pure speculation. And, uh, you know, I like the Orca token just because it has a great logo. So, you know, it, if you're talking about a fully qualified and, you know, doing your due diligence uh, you're you're uh, looking at the wrong guy. However, the rise of Solana is very interesting, and uh, because it, it just happened so incredibly suddenly, there wasn't any uh, massive announcements that were going on uh, that sort of could be used as catalyst. That it was just sudden. Suddenly, Solana went from uh, a very low number to a very big number, uh, and it just kind of kept doing that. And we have seen a big correction this week. Um, but the the story of Solana, I find very interesting. Uh, and it's just got a great damn name. Solana just sounds like to me some, you know, it's not like a sun deity, right? You know, because Sol and everything, like a sun yeah. deity, which some, uh, you know, South American civilization, ancient civilization, sacrificed people to, you know, like, you know, the, uh, the Maya or the Aztec or the Olmec. I don't know if the Olmec did the whole human sacrifice thing, but the other ones did. And, or the Inca, yeah. Uh, you know, it just sounds like one of the, the Solana. It just sounds like a cult, like a sun worshiping cult. And I was just wondering because so many people are into Solana now. Uh, you know, I wonder what what the um, you know what would the initiation ritual be for somebody who was to who was to become a a son of Solana. What, you know? what was um what was that? What was it? Was it Kusama that what people were getting the tattoos for? Yeah, it was Kusama. Yeah, that's true. So, so you would have to think that Solana, that whole kind of soul, solar vibe, like you say, the name is, is pretty cool. Uh, and it does, it invokes like some sort of, to, to me, it's, isn't there like a movie called, no, Solaris, I think is the movie. That's what it reminds right. me of. Um, but maybe, maybe it's like you've got to stare in the sun and get retina burns. That's your, that's your initiation for Solana. You know, there is a weird uh, one of these, you know, fringe alternative health things uh, where people tell you to stare at the sun at either sunrise or sunset, not during the day and saying that just looking at the sun will like, you know, decalcify your pineal gland or whatever. Um, you know, also fuck really your eyesight and give you cataracts by the time you're 30. <laughs> yeah, but my, but bro, you'll be enlightened or something. You'll be cleansed you know, and enlightened spiritually. Mm -hmm. Thing is, uh, with Solana, right? They've got this amazing solar imagery that the name evokes, and yet the logo is just a like a purple pinky S, you know? Yeah, they, they really should just go hard with the sun thing. When you were at school, I don't know, maybe this is before your time when like you used to draw those funky no, the S's. S, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like that on its side. I mean, literally, I, I reckon a, a grade five graphic student could come up with a better logo than what they've actually got. You know, it's a funny but story with fair, that S. That, that, that's oh, well, said of a lot of crypto projects, I might add. This is true. This is true. And so Orca is picking up the slack with a great logo. Yeah, that's a, that's that a S, you know, the, the gothic S that everyone likes. There's a YouTube channel called Let Me Know, uh, or, you know, Let Me Know, but, you know, really, really say it really fast, Let Me Know. 
Oh, wow. uh, which did a really good deep dive on the on trying to find out where that S actually came from. Oh, wow. And it turns out like it's all over the world and nobody like nobody really knows. But he does go back to I think it's some old architectural workbooks from the 18th century where uh who finds out where this s comes from but yeah Le, let me know has a really good uh a really good documentary on that s which is one of these weird things where it's like or every every kid like prepubescent but kind of old kid uh you know knows that s and will draw it maybe the kids don't do it anymore but i'm pretty sure they do do um, and i was gonna say knows where it comes from you speak while we're on the topic of solana i i probably do need to bring this up because this is a slightly annoying part of solana for for us is i remember i remember you sent me a whatsapp message it was like i really like the name of solana and that was like in july and i think you was like i should just buy it because i like the name and, yep. and it was like 30 bucks and then yeah. i think it was like on the i i i did have a look it was on the 11th of august uh, and i think i i sent you a message and i go where, where is it? Here we go. Solana, probably a decent play, really. A bit like when ETH was 100 bucks. Yeah. And since then, the fucking thing is mooned. And it's one of those times where I was like, oh, God, don't you just wish you'd taken your own advice at some point? Yeah, yeah. Because I, yeah. I didn't get any. I still don't have any. <laughs> yeah, to buy my Orca, I did buy some uh, because you know, that's just how it works with, because they've yeah. got their own, yeah, you know, need to go on serum and stuff. But, um, but there's so many shoulda, woulda, coulda stories in yeah. crypto now that like, I, I'm just kind of, you know, I've I'm got at least six to it. I've got uh, at least so you just six. got to do what you can with what you got. I mean, I should have been a millionaire six times over, multi-millionaire six times over, or, you know, 10 million millionaires yeah. 12 times over. Um, yeah. The coulda, shoulda, wouldas. I mean, what's interesting about Solana is, <laughs> is it is, is also the rise of the degenerative apes on fucking Solana as well. Oh come on! It, it was not Solana. It was not. It, it's Ethereum is where the Dgens came from. Yeah, but they've got them on Solana as well. And oh yeah, well yeah, but they just go. They just chase whatever's hot. So it'll be whatever. But it'll be Cosmos next. You know, yeah, they'll be in that, there. But that's exactly right. And that's I think that's that's where you can start to maybe to keep people should be keeping an eye about where these fucking NFT trends move. Because let's be honest, I mean. Solana is an interesting ecosystem. I mean, it is literally driven by um, Sam Bankman Freud. Is that his? Is that, is that his, is that his, his name? I don't know. Yes, I think so. Uh, yeah, FTX. I mean, FTX is like fucking Binance 2.0, basically. Yeah. Do you think Solana is going to flip in BNB? Because if it is the new, if Solana FTX is the new Binance, yeah. and Solana is the new BNB, and yeah. we are saying that you know it's the, it's the new kid on the block. You'd imagine that, yeah. uh, I mean, there's the, the, a certain inevitability that Solana yeah. would, but then that depends on how successful the DEXs are for Solana, you know, because huge growth of Binance is people trading things other than the Binance token and just trying to use, get, use Binance to get access to it. So all the stuff on Binance Smart Chain and whatever. Um, but, oh, the, and there was actually, there was one thing I wanted to, yeah, so it's a weird connection. You know, I'm talking about the whole sun deity kind of side of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So for some reason, did you ever play a video game called Thief? Not that I can recall. Right. It was a, It was originally a series, I think came out in like late 90s, early 2000s on PC. And they rebooted it. Where, and I've only played the reboot in like 20 or maybe 2014 or something. And uh, it's a pretty good game. As the name implies, you play as a thief, but you're in a, in a fantasy medieval world. It's sort of med medieval, but like medieval metropolis kind of thing. Cool. Sort of medieval London. And you sneak around and you, you know, break into nobles' homes and you pick their <laughs> locks and you loot them and you sneak past the guards. And you're not meant to fight the guards because you're not that good at fighting. You're, uh, you've got a bow and arrow, but the whole thing is you're being really, really stealthy and you're just sort of hiding in wardrobes and stuff and waiting for the guards to pass and things and uh, eavesdropping on what they're saying and pickpocketing people and whatever. And they did this reboot. And in the reboot, you, they, you know, they, they made a lot of changes from the original. But the kind of the plot is there's a there's a effectively like a labor revolution going on at the same time. And you can do a couple of jobs for kind of the leader of this labor revolution who goes by the name Orion. Now, there was one whenever I, when I played this, I'm kind of perfectionist. So I was always trying to get the completely stealthy. Nobody notices me. Uh, you know, there are no, alar no alarms by the guards. 
it's all completely, um, you know, I sneak past everybody, I get everything I want, and I get out of there. And there's this one mission which starts where the revolution has finally take place. So it's like it's the one part one of the end phases of the game, and you're uh, you're inside a building that is being sacked by the revolutionaries. And it begins with that one of the like the guards, like they've got some guy and they're just throwing him over a banister. And so you spawn behind them and you're just watching these two guards throw a guy over the over this balustrade. And you hear someone yelling for Orion, like right in the background. And for some reason, and so, you know, if you ever fuck up the mission, right, you want to restart so you can get the complete 100% uh, perfection rate. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, uh, I don't know how it actually happened, but you know they've actually. Uh, whenever I, I some, for some reason, it's just kind of swapped in my head. It could easily have been for Solana that they were actually <laughs> yelling there. Like it could have been completely interchangeable that Solana was just some sort of revolutionary leader in this fantasy world. But I, yeah, I, mean, I have no idea why I made the connection. I, I would. Well, I can see why. I mean, like this is the thing about crypto i mean like so my god there's this it's such a it's such a great amazing wonderful place and at the same time it is just full of toxic douchebags as well it's like the the it, it, if, if anyone holds a crypto that is not one of your bags it's like they're the fucking devil and everyone get everyone is very much for solana or for ethereum or for bitcoin <laughs> and nothing else and it's um does my tits in i swear to god because this is like well okay i mean i'm all for people you know getting behind a, an, an idea and, and having conviction yeah. in it but i mean just kind of kind of maybe just one thought about opening your eyes and, and and opening your imagination to the fact that something else could actually be successful or do well it's um i mean yeah i just think it's pretty closed-minded this whole idea of maxis and stuff but it's it's very much the crypto space but it's very much the stock space as well i mean if you've ever existed on a stock forum um you know in the, in the uk here uh the lse stock chat forums or the advfn ones are quite popular back home in australia there's uh, one which is everyone goes to which is called hot copper um and you go through some of the threads on the stocks um that are covered and it's just mental it's like people get so tribal about about what they've got that they can't even fathom the idea that something else could or would be more successful it's like what we were saying before you know there's plenty of shoulda coulda wouldas in, in crypto but like um yeah people just get so tribal about it and i think it's i think it's partly because it comes down to the fact that money's in play um i think that's a big part of it and and people just can't admit that maybe somebody else has made more or done better. Um, and maybe it's an ego thing. I don't know, but it does my fucking head in. Um, mm -hmm. and, and around crypto, it's, it's, it's worse. It's worse than stocks. I mean, it's bad in stocks, but it's worse in crypto. It's, you know, it's a shame because I think it does hold back a lot of the space. But at the same time, you get these wild communities get so big and so pumped about something that it can, it just sends shit skyrocketing like Solana, like, the thing about Solana is, is, you know, okay, its rise has been great, but you almost don't want to see it going so hard, so high, so quickly, um, because it's still a it's still a market, right? And you just know there's an inevitable fall off the top. Which, to be fair, we've already, you know, we've already seen that. Like, what is it? Like, was it yesterday? It peaked at like over two hundred and fifteen bucks or something like that, and it's back yeah. down now around one seventy two. Um, I mean, this is this is the market that we live in. Fun, fun time. But hey, Sam, if you think crypto hooliganism was bad, just wait till you find out what the U.S. military will do for the U.S. dollar. <laughs> yeah, well, they'll rug El Salvador, the cheeky fucks. Yeah, uh, it is. A, I mean, I think it's just hooliganism. I think you know people just yeah, get really maybe. attached to their team, and they just want to. Yeah be the team that wins and everyone else is a loser, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it seems yeah, to have gotten know. worse though. I think, it, I think it's gotten worse. Over Lockdown, the last man. Years. It's just people being more online. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, it's shit. People, stop Wait. it. If you're a tribal wanker, stop being a tribal wanker. No, maximalism. Everyone, everyone <laughs> must be a maxi. Everyone is a maxi in their own way.
Well, come on, you've got to be ma- a maximalist on something, Sam. I mean, I, there's plenty of shit I like and plenty of shit I've got a lot of conviction behind, but I'm not closed off to the idea that I could be wrong or that something else could be better. Yeah, the the problem is, you know, we're all the, we're, all we're discussing are our projects, our creations, forms that have been created by man and as a result they just you know they'll never be perfect well actually so, now while you while you while you if you're going to mention things created by man it, it that is a pretty good segue to to something that we brought up on on wednesday about uh-huh. things created not by man uh-huh gold no the, the, <laughs> the fucking woman who presses control b at tether and at the fed uh-huh. we, we need to we need to reveal the results See, this is the thing. This is the thing. We have so much to talk about in this podcast, right? There, there are multiple avenues. I'd actually completely forgotten about that. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I, I've been having so much fun with Artflow, uh, where you just type in a description. Arguably too much fun, folks. Yeah, maybe a little too much fun, actually. Um, and it, But, you know, it, so all you do, the idea is they've just got some AI algorithm that tries to recognize words and apply them to an image. So you type in a description, and it will show you a face of somebody uh, based on uh, what you've written in. So we'll try to create a face uh, based on a description. So for example, Sam Volkering, but as a Disney prince. You know, <laughs> we'll try and do, we'll try and Is do that. Is that one of your private collections? <laughs> <laughs> Not tried it yet, actually, but uh, no, it, it's such a bad idea. Problem is, it, it works mostly, obviously, because it's just trolling the internet. It needs to be, you know, big figure. If you're going to be, if, if you're trying to get an individual to look like something else. There needs to be huge amounts of content about them. So, you know, I put in Sam Volkering and Boa Shoshan, and of course the two people, the two faces they created, of course had, you know, looked nothing like me or Sam. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> you obviously have leave a lot of room, a lot of room for a maneuver because it's just some AI project that don't charge you any money, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you know, it didn't, it didn't really look like anything. However, if you apply it to actual, uh, actual people who have a you know a historical figures or you know to um, you know to uh, to public figures today as there are so many photos of it you know they'll um, they'll you know the the will be images uh, will create images that do look like real life so uh, as a as you know to have a bit of fun we uh, we put in uh, you know the woman who presses control P and the Tether Foundation uh, be, being the uh, the organization which mints USDT, the cryptocurrency that's one-to-one uh, backed by dollars, supposedly, even though they've admitted that wasn't even true and it was only 70% at one point. Uh, and now these days in their more recent uh, uh, more recent disclosures to the public, they have said that it's like, you know, it's less than 5% is actual cash and the rest is all uh, mysterious commercial paper. So loans, short-term loans to other businesses, but we don't really know what that commercial paper is. So who, who, who it's a loan to, et cetera, et cetera. It's all very, very murky, but the thing is no one actually gives a shit because everyone just loves using Tether. So we were wondering, you know, well, well you know, who, who, what, would, uh, what would be the woman who actually presses control P, right? And just prints all this Tether. So during that crypto crash earlier in the week, we saw a billion dollars of Tether suddenly were minted. So, uh, you know, according to Tether, they've suddenly somehow, you know, they've just received a billion dollars in assets and they're just going to mint a billion dollars of USDT. Now, uh, this is very unlikely, of course, that someone actually did wire them a billion dollars in dollar, you know, in actual dollars. Uh, but, you know, nobody seems to really care about it. And so they've gotten away with minting another billion dollars. So who, I, you know, I want to know, you know what, what does this person look like? Uh, and, you know, I just thought it'd be, it'd be a woman that would, that would do it, you know, control P and 1 billion USDT, please, coming up. And then did another one for, uh, you know, the woman at the Fed who presses control P at the Federal Reserve to print all the dollars for their quantitative easing and reverse repo and all that good stuff. Now, interestingly, so the woman who works at Tether, uh, you know, Tether, the Tether Foundation doesn't have that much, you know, while, you know, it has come to the fore, it doesn't have that much uh, images associated with it. Um, however, the Federal Reserve does. So the woman who presses Control P in the image, if you just go onto our uh, Twitter page, you can find the images. Uh, it's just booze, booms, and busts on Twitter. You can actually see the image that they've created for the woman who presses Control P at the Fed yeah. is a blend of Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell. Yeah. 
Uh, and it is really quite, it is actually really quite well done. The woman who breasted control P at the Teller Foundation, uh, well, I, uh, you know, she's very attractive. However, I don't know where they're drawing the information <laughs> from, ultimately. Uh, so in terms of who, who would you rather trust, I think it's come out, yeah, who would you rather trust with your money? Uh, we did a little poll on Twitter, and it did come out with the Teller Foundation coming up in front. Sam, what do you make of that result? Uh, it was it was close. Admittedly, not a huge number of respondents. Very disappointed with our listeners. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was I was fascinated that yeah the the Tether Foundation is is clearly a younger person, uh, very attractive. Again, I have no idea where they pull the images from. And there you look at the Fed, and is literally Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen merged into an AI image, and it is exactly what you would come to expect from the Fed. Uh, but admittedly, however, the the person created this blend of Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell. It's more Jerome Powell, I must admit. Markedly, well, uh, well, it's a funny thing. It's it's, it's to do with the hair. But, yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, uh, the the image they've created is far more attractive than both Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen combined. So, I have noticed uh, this with art, with uh, this AI flow, art flow, whatever it is, um, is that the images they don't tend to be butt ugly. It's like it's like the AI has this idea. Oh, mate, you've not spent enough time using this app. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, I'm not sure I want to spend more time using it now, to be honest. Oh yeah, you can do some like this pretty pretty wild uh, some <laughs> some of the stuff you can uh, get away with on this. Of course, uh, you know it does actually. Um, does actually filter a lot of things uh, that if you you try to get it to generate uh, and some of it is is as a mistake so we'll say you know we think this is it you're trying to create something inappropriate and it was like i was just trying to look at uh you know dominic cummings as a meth addict or something right and it said uh <laughs> said no and you know uh, you know oh, that's not that bad is it you know I, I was just just wanted to see what what it thought that would look like but you know uh, it does it does um it does draw the line in some places um, yeah, but it is interesting that turnout. Tether does seem to be winning the day there. There was also a question that we received uh, from one of our listeners. Uh, and this was a little while ago, but it was a, a very interesting question, actually. So this comes from Cryptos Before Burrows, who asks, uh, Sam and Boaz, what's your take on why ETH is pumping so high despite the embarrassing hard fork it suffered last week? I'm personally quite perplexed that it's gone so high. Do you think this is driven by retail and larger investors who don't understand the tech? Cheers. Well, thank you for your question, Cryptos Before Bros. Sam, what do you make of that? Um, yeah. So why is ETH pumping? I mean, I, I'd, I'd be of the argument that ETH isn't pumping. Um, well, I mean, the, this question did come in five days ago, so we have seen. But uh, at the time, uh, we did, ETH, was, ETH was pumping. Pretty, pretty I mean, hard it's, it's relative, relative to the <coughs> relative to where it has been in the past yeah it's it's pumping i mean you look at a fully diluted market cap at the moment of like 381 billion us dollars worth and it, there's a you know fair fair reason to ask why i don't think the the fork i mean look ethereum's one of those things where it's it's been around for so much longer than other chains that have enabled like there, there are so many other other networks that do exactly what Ethereum does, but they just don't have the same community size. They don't have the same history. Um, they don't have the same underlying investment from big organizations involved in crypto behind them. Um, you know, they don't have they don't have grayscale with a with a trust behind it. Um, Ethereum is sort of an early mover, and and look, I don't think that. I don't think that Ethereum's necessarily pumped yet. Not not like it could in in in, in a big cycle, but um, it's yeah. It, it, I think what I think what people get stuck up with or caught up with now is is the idea, like I was saying before, that you know this this idea that you know one one uh, network can be shit because maybe it has a, a fork or something like that, or you know maybe one can be shit because it hasn't got you know one-tenth the developers that are working on Ethereum or things like that. What's what's coming with all of these networks, whether it be Solana, Ethereum, or what's what's already here, Binance, Tezos, Cardano, um, fuck, I could go on and on and on, um, is that they're all going to bridge and interchange with each other. 
And so I think that you'll find that they'll all kind of eventually catch up to each other. And I don't think we'll see one that, that does end up in the long term streets ahead of the others, um, that they'll all almost kind of merge into this one giant chain that just allows bridges across each other. And that, that we'll find that eventually they'll all kind of level out and that it'll be the layer two apps <clears throat> that end up becoming the sort of the next, you know, the next iterations of the Ubers and the Robin Hoods and uh, the Airbnbs or the Facebooks of this world uh, in the TradFi uh, ecosystem. Um, those are the, those will be the next ones that, that really leg up. So there's, there's something to be said for layer one protocols still like Ethereum, Solana, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's still probably plenty of opportunity because we're still pretty early days, but relatively speaking, also we're not. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. Th I don't think the fork's an issue. It clearly isn't an issue. Um, Ethereum is Ethereum's bigger problem is that it's slow, clunky, expensive to use, um, which plenty of others are, are doing better than that at it. All of the ones I've just mentioned, for example. So Ethereum's got bigger problems. Its upgrades are slow, take forever. And that's what happens is when you become this big hunking loaf of, uh, of, of stuff, it's hard to turn that big ship when you need to make things better. Whereas the other projects are smaller, nimble, can do things from the outset before they launch their mainnet and then sail on up and maybe even buy uh, something like Ethereum. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but probably makes sense to have a few stokes in a few fires, I'd say. Well, the um, just going back to that, uh, so looking at the hard fork, right? Uh, and, you know, uh, this listener uh, views it as an embarrassing hard fork. This is not something that was, uh, uh, that, that made Ethereum look very good. Could we dwell on that a bit more, Sam? Um, so what, you know, could you give us some context for the embarrassing hard fork? Um, so I think what it was is there was a bug there was a bug found in the code and a bunch of the nodes went to upgrade and a bunch didn't, um, which effectively meant that a whole bunch of them were validating blocks on a chain uh, and then a bunch were validating them more. Well, it was effectively on another chain. And so when you have these two chains with validations on both sides, they're effectively two, it's a split um, and there was no you know, consensus with it. So you end up with a hard fork and eventually they all decide to shift over and drop the, the chain that, you know, contains the bug. They upgrade their software. They upgrade the, the validator software and away they go and they continue on, on the, on the appropriate chain in the short term, it can cause issues and problems and it brought vulnerabilities to, to the surface. And what it did is it showed that Ethereum is not perfect and the people working on it and developing it are not perfect. But I think we already knew that. I don't see. So no, this I think is why that I was very clear. This is why I don't think it's embarrassing for it because Ethereum's already kind of become a bit embarrassing. Um, you know, when when they went through the Ethereum improvement protocol, was it fifteen fifty seven or whatever? Um, it was supposed to be cheaper and faster, and it's not. I mean, Ethereum has not delivered on their promise and. They may never do that. Ethereum may just become like Bitcoin. It may just eventually become a store of value, slow, clunky, and a piece of shit. And, and developers may just port their decentralized applications onto other chains. I think that's probably more likely um, because Ethereum is just not suitable for anything other than... Um, uh, I don't know. It's just too, exp I don't, it's too expensive right now. I just don't see how it's suitable at all. I, I wonder I wonder what the fate is of Ethereum Classic right now because I see I mean, this is what I don't un see I don't understand this at all I don't get why Ethereum Classic has any value. Yeah, well, there are still developers on it though. That's the thing, and yeah, they're the guys I, who I actually that. took responsibility of the error. I you know to be fair, arguably Ethereum Classic is the better blockchain. Um, but I still, I, I still struggle to understand how it's a $7 billion circulating market cap chain. Like name me one thing that exists on Ethereum Classic. 
Yeah, I was wondering if there was somebody who was going to do the original CryptoPunks, but just on ETH Classic. So I <laughs> exactly the same, but just do it on ETH Classic because you know you, it's the same software. I mean, it's the same. You're doing the, exactly the same thing. It's not like doing it on a different blockchain. It's still Ethereum. Hmm. Um, yeah, I do wonder why I'm to ETH Classic because in the end, I want the ETH Classic guys to win because they're the ones who actually took responsibility and ownership over the mistake that had been made rather than trying to change the past uh, with this massive centralized intervention that they did. Yeah, exactly. But, it's like yeah. Ethereum Classic is true to the ethos of what decentralized networks are supposed to be about. You know, they're supposed to yeah. be free. And if something fucks up, you let it fuck up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we get to... Uh, work, but then again, why like? the fuck is Litecoin worth $11.5 billion? And Bitcoin <laughs> Cash a, yeah. twelve. Why is why is Bitcoin Cash worth twelve billion? I mean, well, there's so much in crypto that it's just unexplainable. Yeah. What about what about Satoshi's vision? Eh. What about BSV? Or oh, yeah, talk about maximalism. What about the people who say that Bitcoin isn't Bitcoin? It's BTC. The real Bitcoin is Bitcoin Satoshi's vision. I mean, I, again, I don't have any problem with that. With that or them, if they, if that's what they believe and they want to have a crack at that best of luck to them who cares <laughs> this is the whole oh, thing oh yeah oh oh i mean there's de they're the, definitely this is what so much of, yeah. this is what so much of crypto has got issues with right is that is that if some if, if it's not if it doesn't fit your vision or your views or your whatever it's a scam and look there are scams out there don't get me wrong there's plenty of scams um but there's also some that are just literally are people that share a different vision or a different view from what you might and they're as bad as each other but just like all right, if they th if it's so good and they think it's so good, just let it be. And if it is good, isn't as good as they say, then it'll it'll do its thing. People will realize how good it can be. And if it's a piece of shit and a scam, people will realize it's a piece of shit and a scam and it'll fail. So the, the, you've just, it, it, the best thing with crypto is to just let the market take care of itself. Let the market be free to make its own decisions. And what will be, will be. I mean, I still think Do Dogecoin's a piece of shit. But I'm wrong because plenty of people don't. Heresy. Heresy. <laughs> exactly, right? So but but that's like I don't mind. I don't I, again I don't have I don't hold any and anyone that's got some, good on you. Well, we can come back to Dogecoin. I think it is a very interesting project uh in general, in that now that its creator has pretty much like denounced it and yet <laughs> it still has value. I like I'm definitely rooting for it. I mean I, yeah. I love Shiba Inus anyway, and the Dogecoin community. Some of the plenty of them are retarded. <laughs> plenty of them are retarded, but uh, you know, it is. Um, it's still interesting. It's, it's one of these. It's one of these experiments. It's a social experiment with what is value. Yeah. Uh, at all, uh, and because it's done at such a scale, it's not like something with modern art where some retard just does, you know shits on a wall or whatever and sells it. Because it's a token, and each token is identical. And you can buy, you know, it's just one price that everybody's looking at when they're buying and selling this stuff. It's this big experiment in value, especially when the creators disowned it. I think that makes it quite unique. It's a bit like with Satoshi having disappeared or, you know, probably being dead. Mm. Um, the, when, you, when the owner has actually said no, it's fact that you cast this thing into the wild and people still find value in it. Like they it's like they're it's like they're lonely in their lives and they find they like being part of a community which is really sad actually uh, but then for other people it's just like this is just what the cryptocurrency this is like the, the final wave of crypto cycles is when dogecoin goes nuts because it's how how kind of them get into it and stuff um but Sam, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm havering here. Uh, can you uh, give us an introduction to what you're drinking this week? Because I, I realize we're quite late in the show. Actually, we haven't introduced any beer. Yeah, we sometimes, admittedly, before I think we have got to the end of a show, and um, and managed to not review any beers, and then we was like, oh, actually, we've just had a couple of beers each. So uh, for me, the first beer I've got. So I should again probably. Um, uh, give a uh, pre-warning on this is that i'm still uh waiting for a next batch of my uh boutique beers from all over the world so i had to pop down to the local spa to get uh, a couple off the shelf because uh the cupboard was bare um so these are probably a little bit more mainstream than what <clears throat> we're used to drinking 
the first one I've got is the Faversham Steam Brewery, and it's Whitstable Bay or Whitstable Bay or Whitstable Bay, um, and it's an organic ale, superbly balanced with smooth, malty, and hot flavors. Um, it's actually organic, really nice. Huh? I uh, I don't I don't I don't know where. Oh, Kent, Faversham, Kent. Uh, combines old seaside charm with a modern bohemian vibe. Well, it had me at organic ale. Um, bit citrusy, golden amber in color. Really nice. Um, again, it's probably a bit more mainstream, and I'm sure you know plenty of people have heard about it before, but I don't think I've had it before. So, yeah. Uh, Faversham Steam Brewery, Whitstable Bay. Um, I'm going to rate you... Oh, where are we? I'd probably say a B for Whitstable Bay. I've had Whitstable Bay quite a few times, actually. Um, I've been able to get it at supermarkets in England, but not in Scotland, I believe. Uh, but the old Whitstable Bay. It's got a nice label, if memory serves. It does. Uh, it's like a little, little uh, ship little on it. Ship. Yeah. Sailing boat. Yeah, that's it. I'm actually on my second beer for today. The first one was a uh, Four Pure Citrus Session IPA uh, made in Bermondsey. And uh, I do like Four Pure in general. They make some very nice stuff. This one's got, uh, quite simple. You know, so Citrus Session IPA, tangerine, juicy, easy uh, is the description and 4%. So uh, yeah, and there's a witty sideline. This pairs well with someone who fancies a Citrus Session IPA. But this is, uh, yeah, Four Pure and uh, 4% went down very well indeed, very refreshing. Uh, you know, I was having a, another citrus IPA in our last episode a couple of days ago, and uh, it wasn't very impressive. This one is a lot better. I would give this one a B plus, very simple, and uh, it does a job. Nice. I'm actually on my second one now, which sadly is pretty dog shit. Uh, this is another one from... Um, <laughs> This is another one from that waitress beside the American Embassy. This is by Rooster's Brewing Company, which I've had a few from before, actually. And it's generally been pretty good. This one's called Thousand Yard Stare. Hazy Pale Ale, 5.4%. And um, it tastes like somebody has just uh, tapped their cigarette into my glass. Oh. And then just stirred it around. I, I feel like I'm, I'm drinking like cigarette ash for some reason. I don't know what it is that they've done in there. But uh, yeah, I'm thinking this is going to get... I think this is going to get a double A plus. I'll give it a double A plus. Oh, that's uh, yeah, that's that's ouchy. <laughs> I think to be fair, I actually think that's the first double A plus we've had. You, I, I think, I think you triple A'd the um, your your beer. What was it your beer fasting uh, experiment? That was some triple A's there with the Aventinus. Um, yeah, Aventinus. Yeah, that but, was uh, not. Uh, we haven't had a double A plus before. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. That sounds quite. That feels quite extreme. Then we've had uh, some. We've had some double A's, but not the double A plus. Because basically, the double A plus is one step above the triple A, which is for those who may be tuning in for the first time, our worst rating that you can get. It's a triple A plus is basically. I would rather drink. Um, uh, dishwater, dishwashing water, or something. I was thinking of it the other way around, though. No, so I was meaning double A plus in this sense as. The step between single A and double A. No, see, the step between single A and double A is A minus. Ah, right. Well, in that case, ah, oh, right. No, but I it's think, not the same thing because you. I don't know. Look, to be honest with you, our rating system is so fucking complex. I don't even know <laughs> it anymore. No, no, no. I, I think I, I, I keep promising to make the infographic for this. No, well, yeah. Okay, in this case, I. Okay, in that case, then I shall give this a uh an a minus yeah i'll give it an a minus yeah. okay that fits in with a few we've had before because it's not that some, bad it's not that bad some a minuses um, for just just do as a bit of a rundown memory lane some a minuses we've had an ants batch and hob day peach sour from sam a wispy yule from boaz uh heart and soul from me uh boaz grandma's apple pie and what's in the bag uh, <laughs> what's in the, the bag i remember that <laughs> It's like, oh, right. I finally remember that one. That was a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, it was. And even, I think there's there are some double A's in there too, that even uh, when we had Akil Patel on the show, uh, Lost and Grounded, he gave a double A. But I think he was, he thought that was probably good. Um, I'm not sure. 
Well, they'd have them on again, actually. Um, we should do, actually. We yeah. should have another guest on at some point. Yeah, it has been a while. And we, yeah, we've not done any guests for season two yet, have we? Oh. Um, yeah, we should definitely do that at some point. Um, yeah, uh, another one. Uh, I was going to say today, uh, this is, uh, I'd like to raise a, a parting glass, actually, to, uh, to what was a big part of my day job for quite a long time uh, until now. It was uh, today was the final day of capital and conflict. The uh, of course we don't you know don't like to mix work up with too, with too much of this, but uh, capital and conflict was the newsletter investment newsletter which I wrote for uh, quite a long time. I think I started doing it full time in 2018 and contributed to it a lot in uh, in 2017, and now it has uh, it is it is now no more. The final one has been done, so it is quite a change, but. Um, you know, it's uh, moving on to uh, bigger and better things. But uh, Capital Conflict was a newsletter that I read before I worked at South Bank Investment Research. It was a uh, you know something I looked forward to reading every day. It's one of the reasons I, I end up getting into uh, this sort of this industry uh, that we're now both in. So, just feel um, just feel a bit sad that today is the last day of Capital huh. Conflict. But yeah, these things happen. What uh, what would what would be your parting words? For capital mm. to, the, to our listeners that may have never read it or or or, or now won't um yeah what 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 should they what should they bear in mind mm. oh, for some, this is for somebody who's never read it yeah what's uh, the what's the what's the message <laughs> what would be yeah what, what was the takeaway come on give us the key take what's the brief yeah you had to distill it down eh out of all the uh, over over the time that it was in uh, in existence, uh, capital conflict. What's the where's what? Is, I mean, capital and conflict really do go together, don't they? Very well. They do. They do. And it, we did uh, we did spend a lot of time on both topics. That's for sure. Uh, I thought I was also thought it was a bit lacking on the conflict side. And we ended up dwelling a lot on the conflict side. Mm. Um, but now, in terms of a broad takeaway, it was a uh, this was the intended to be sort of a voice from the from the alternative investment fringe, uh, looking at lots of things which no one else really wanted to look at, or considering things in a way that uh, other people didn't. Just trying to take a you know quite an alternative and fresh take that was less, uh, not just less mainstream, but uh, ultimately a um, a provocative uh, contrarian take. Not just for the sake of being contrarian, but because. Uh, I generally did believe in uh, in everything I wrote. I never lied in anything I wrote or uh, made a prediction I didn't believe. And of course, didn't always get it right, uh, as is the way of things. But uh, yeah, it is, uh, yeah, it's been and gone uh, and had a good name. So I, a, I had a great conflict. name. I've got a, got a question for you, actually, just on speaking of that. So, I mean, I've been accused before in the past with some of the things I've written um, about not taking into account uh, the impact that some of the companies that we write about or even recommend uh, with work have on people, whether it's, you know, this, the, the, the rise of capitalism and the widening gap of the, of, you know, between the rich and the poor, or, you know, the, the, what, com what companies do to the environment, uh, the ESG message. I've been accused of, of not factoring that in. And I, I always sort of sit on the side of it's not my job to find companies that make you feel fucking good about yourself. It's my job to find companies that are going to make you money. Um, and arguably companies that are deeply involved in conflict, uh, weapons armament companies, you know, a lot of the big multinational weapons manufacturers and uh, ammunition manufacturers and military providers and contractors are big companies that make a lot of money and can, and have in the past done very well for investors. Do you think that we're going to move to a world where those companies stop becoming public companies and go and go off the public markets because they just don't fit this weird movement to I will only ever invest in ESG companies? Uh, okay, so... Yeah, there are a lot of ways we can go with that. Uh, to answer the question at the end, no, uh, because there are always going to be people who use public markets and don't have a choice when they use public markets to simply maximize returns for investors. So uh, the people who are very pro-ESG, you know, the really militant ESG people, uh, they are uh, in the minority. Uh, maybe that will change in the future, but that's certainly not the way it is now. 
I expect when uh, the returns from a lot of ESG-friendly uh, investments, so we saw the Harvard Endowment uh, yeah. going against fossil fuels today. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a, obviously there's a lot of big money going there, but all that's going to do is going to undervalue uh, these companies, which are, for example, in, uh, in the business of making arms, uh, and that will provide a greater opportunity for those who don't follow the ESG mandate. ESG mandate has huge issues itself. There is a uh, there's actually a, there's a public document that anyone can read. I believe it's called uh, Confessions. I think is it Confessions of a Green Industry Insider or Confessions of an ESG Investor. Whereas a, a gentleman at BlackRock who's actually uh, very heavily involved in creating the ESG mandate within portfolios. Uh, and he, though he was involved in actually creating this ESG complex, uh, is it just points out all of the uh, all of the hypocrisy within the space. There are loads and loads of issues. Of, it. of course, people have got a lot of people are going ESG because they think it's a good thing to do, which is I think completely right. But in terms of uh, you know going under this ESG mandate, and if you've got the ESG green stamp, you can get away with whatever you want. So all you need to do is just meet the standard to then get that ESG stamp, and then you can carry on with it. Uh, there are lots of problems with that. I don't think companies are going to go private because they're not ESG friendly. Uh, in the case of weapons companies, it's much more common that uh, these companies don't go public because they are making such sensitive equipment that they cannot afford for anyone other than the state to be involved in making decisions about it. So shareholders cannot be trusted to safeguard national security interests. So you find this big time in Russia, uh, you find it in China as well. Like they, like these companies don't go public because you know what? Uh, the Russian government doesn't want some loser in the West who just wants a higher return on capital to start interfering with making you know their next air-to-air -air missile or whatever. Uh, so you often find a lot of those are kept private. Uh, of course, it's a lot different in some parts of the States where you just have these huge conglomerates like Lockheed Martin, which have sub-departments that you just never hear about because they're not disclosed to shareholders. They don't need to because they're national security sensitive and stuff. And so they get away with it. You'll find that uh, companies in this country, in Britain, like BAE, is yep. one of the major offenders on ESG. So you will not find BAE systems in a green ETF, to my knowledge. Uh, I've, I've seen it blacklisted more than once uh, you know, you can't. So there are indices that are created that are pro ESG. ETF providers then use those ESG indices in order to create uh, their own e uh, index tracking ETFs. And so when you've got the uh, the green ind index, you know, they will actually show you the ones that aren't in the index. And you'll see BAE is a very big offender on there because, you know, they make bombs for, uh, you know, well, they make weapons and, and they, they sell them a lot, especially to Gulf countries. So you're looking at the uh, the crisis in Yemen uh, and you see what the, um, the Royal Saudi Air Force used there. Uh, you know, a lot of that is BAE equipment, not just the planes, but the munitions and things like that. Um, but at the same time, um, it's a, you know, so you're looking at, you know, that's, that's the UK side of it. Um, looking at whether or not, or how things might change in the future for what is considered green, what's not. It all depends on whether or not the green promise really delivers and whether or not the ESG promise really delivers in a lot of ways relative to things like fossil fuels. Uh, I think that, I mean, the jury is very, very much that. Who knows? I'm not an expert in things like green technology and whatnot. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are, I, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical because people have been saying that solar is going to change the world for a very long time. And they're, as in saying, solar is going to change the world in such a meaningful way that it's impossible to avoid. And they've been saying that since you know the 80s. So I'm I'm kind of skeptical on that side to it. Um, but Sam, when you talk about who's responsible, what your responsibility is, um, I well 100% agree that it's not your responsibility to be only recommending companies that uh, fit everyone's taste because ultimately that's impossible anyway. But uh, you know I think people need to remember that we here in the UK we are living in a democracy. And uh, the businesses, if we're just looking at UK businesses like BAE, which is very, very non-ESG, uh, non as previously mentioned, BAE can only sell the arms it does with explicit approval from the UK government. You have a big problem with that, then we are in a democracy and it is completely possible to mobilize enough political support to stop 
uh, you know, to uh, to stop said sales. Uh, I, I know a lot of people are involved in that already. You see people protesting outside Westminster, specifically saying stop selling bombs to Saudi Arabia and things like that. Uh, but we are in a democracy, so uh, uh, you know, if you if you want to change that, you don't turn to Sam Volkering. You turn to your local MP and you write to them and you say, please, can you raise this with the MOD? Um, speaking speaking of companies that are absolutely not part of the ESG um, mandates, I thought I was just like, you know what? I, 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 was, I was interested to see what British American tobacco has been up to recently with its stock price. And um, the, the forward dividend uh, yield on British American tobacco is 7.9% at its current price. Damn. Uh, yeah. Good luck finding that. Uh, good luck finding that in uh, in your latest ESG firm. But I so this this be... kind of I, that, that that this almost exemplifies what you were just talking about, where it, it is absolutely not going to fit into these ESG molds. But like when you're looking at stocks with with where that can generate the seven or you know seven point nine percent yield, I mean that. It's almost it, it's it's basically a contrarian play. British American tobacco. Okay, it, you know the capital you know, appreciation or whatever. I don't know. I don't really know that much about what they're currently doing. Um, I would imagine that they would eventually be getting into things like uh, cannabis, as that that industry starts to expand a bit more if they're not already. Um, but I mean, you, you well, ESG. It'll be interesting to see how the ESG funds actually perform in the next few years. Uh, whether, like you say, think that whether their investments deliver, um, which which I'm sure many won't, and then look back and reflect on how the non-ESG players, the BAE systems and uh, British American Tobacco and so forth, actually end up uh, performing. So I'm I'm curious now as to as to what BAE systems. So BAE's got a forward dividend yield of 4.3 percent um, over the last year. I'm trying to pull up the chart, I haven't. You know, they haven't really done much capital-wise. But again, you know, if you want some income stocks, because maybe income stocks could be back on the agenda for investors. Well, see, Um, this is the thing. This is the thing, right? So what I find particularly interesting about the ESG mandate is how it's often brought up uh, for the pension funds of uh, large organizations which contain a very politically active workforce. And ultimately... Pension funds need yield. It's not, they're not so much in the capital growth business. Uh, they're not about, you know, getting huge capital returns. They, you know, they love that too. But uh, what they really want is reliable cash flows in future, which they can then use to pay out existing uh, pensioners. And, uh, you know, ultimately the ESG stuff, like, just doesn't deliver on that uh, by and large. I'm sure there are exceptions. But, you know, when it comes to actually paying a dividend, uh, and because you can't go to the bond market unless you're doing uber risky stuff now to get a get a high high uh, interest rate, uh, you know if you want that yield in order to pay said pensioners, like you can't like the, this ESG promise is okay. Maybe your capital is helping the world become a be- better place, but when you're actually thinking about if you're thinking in the interests of your pensioners who are relying on you to live, uh, you know throwing a lot of money into um, you know, whatever a tech entrepreneur says is the next big thing, and it's how they're going to save the world. Probably isn't going to cut it. So I find it, um, I find it very interesting that some pensions are moving away from like the British American Tobacco, when it, you know, it's it's almost like they're not thinking about their own uh, stakeholders. So we're we're seeing recently, um, you know, the USS Pension Scheme, you know, even though it's called USS, it's uh, rather rather deceptive. You know, the uh, the large. UK pension scheme for uh, staff at UK universities. Uh, we're looking at more strike action. So if you're if you're if you're a student, right, you've got fobbed off. You you've bought, got all the student debt, and you've uh, you've maybe even paid for accommodation because the university has said you need to stay at accommodation even during lockdown to get the most out of your course because they want your money. Uh, you know you've had this absolutely terrible, you know, just terrible time at university over the past uh, couple of years and uh, now you finally turn up at university because they're they're not locking down so much anymore and it turns out a huge number of the staff are actually striking so you're not going to get your classes after all even though you have might have been able to turn up because the staff are striking because there are being cuts to their pension scheme and 
you know, the USS, can it really afford to, to, to start making some plays in getting rid of its fossil fuels and getting rid of its income paying stocks because they don't uh, make greenies feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Uh, it, it just brings up a very, I think it brings up a very stark contrast. You know, what, uh, what the world you want to see and the world you want to earn money to live in as a pensioner. Yeah, yeah, that's a fucking good point. There's two very different uh, worlds there. The world you want to see that doesn't pay you anything and the world that is the world that you actually live in that actually helps you to survive and live um, and uh, pay all the costs and things that you need to as you get older in life. I, I was just having a quick flick through British American Tobacco as well. And even through the last uh, year under lockdowns and where so many companies had ceased paying dividends, uh, sorry, uh, BAE Systems, uh, BAE Systems has been paying dividends. Um, BAE Systems paid a dividend in April this year, paid a dividend in October last year, paid a dividend in August last year, paid a dividend in April last year. Um and, and and so so forth and so on before that. Yeah, uh, with military uh, equipment, the uh, the they've often been allied because they're key personnel and it's national security interests. Yeah, yeah. A lot of I the mean, projects have been able to proceed. You've got to. I th- we I think we may. I mean, income stocks are always something that investors should really be looking hard at because, like you say, even you know when you when you blow out the long term view you know compounding returns if you you know make good dividend reinvestment plans and those sorts of things uh you you can grow a serious little kitty that then you can then you draw on as as that income you know later in life it's um i think we might might start to see it. i think so like there was this whole rise remember there's that rise in fucking shifting from active to passive investing with etfs and then there was very much a sort of transition away from from value stocks to growth stocks um and there's been a bit of talk about that shift back to value again um i think was i think the the idea of income stocks the good stocks that are going to pay high good yielding returns um i think they're going to be flavor of the month again pretty soon if they're not already just doesn't seem to be like they're they're getting much attention at the moment yes Uh, yeah i'd agree with that and i think the inflation um the inflation spectacle will uh have a big impact on that so yeah, I mean, are you? Uh, it depends what people want. Whether or not, um, if you're in a business which can raise its which can raise its prices quite rapidly, then obviously it's good in inflationary times. If not, then then less so. Um, but yeah, I, it will be a very interesting to see how how that all turns out. Um, there was something I want to say about. That. Oh yeah, yeah. This is a funny funny stat I I, I learned the other day. Um, Went to, now that I'm back in London, I went to my favorite uh, cigar shop, my favorite to- tobacco specialist, a great one on St. James Street called JJ Fox. And I was speaking to a couple of staff there. And I knew that like cigar consumption had gone up a lot during lockdown. In fact, tobacco, like nicotine consumption in general just went up, right? Um, but this was actually contrasted with the amount of cigar production that was. And so uh, in the UK, I believe it was the UK, cigar consumption went up by six times during 2020. Right. Wow. Which is quite remarkable. Uh, but when you consider it's a relatively sort of small, it's still a relatively small. I mean, it's still plenty of people smoke. I mean, you still find them everywhere. But yeah, it's um, still it, that's an enormous increase, um, even though it's a small sort of base. But in terms of global tobacco production uh, for cigars, at least cigar production fell by two thirds during huh. the same period. And it's remarkable that cigar prices haven't they've increased. but They're not going up by that much uh because that is a huge i mean that's a huge discrepancy obviously it's just the uk so maybe in other parts of the world people weren't uh turning to stogies uh instead of you know eating and stuff uh, <laughs> i know i was certainly uh i was certainly my highest cigar consumption rate was during the first lockdown big time um but i mean i think it's it's wild that we've not seen yeah it's just i just find that a wild discrepancy i'm surprised that the cigar prices aren't higher despite that but maybe it's because the rest of the world wasn't uh, quite as aggressive as, as the Brits. Mm. Yeah, I mean, do you know what the the high end of the cigar market was doing though? Ah, good question. Uh, but I think this I think this includes the bulk of. I think this is the thick middle of the market. Yeah. Yeah. 
because I think luxury yeah. goods across the board uh, were actually a pretty good place to be, I think, in the last year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you, as long as you avoid China, because so much of the luxury good market is China uh, these days. Because uh, they, uh, they've gotten into a lot of trouble, some of the luxury This might be something we late. pick up next week, uh, a little bit more of a chat about China, because there's a whole heap of shit going on there, which we've barely scratched the surface on as well. But I'm, I'm interested to see, I might have a look into it this week, as to with everything that is going on in China at the moment, how that's impacted some of the luxury brands, that obviously China is a big market, and whether or not some of these uh, recent, restrictions that are sort of happening to the market and to consumers and to people in China, whether that's going to have a really big impact on some of the big brands like LVMH, um, Ferrari and those kinds of companies. Yeah, big time, big time. Yeah, as a, you know, as we've said multiple times, uh, it's absolutely, you know, there were, there, were so, there were so many things to cover, but we did cover off most of them, I think, this time <laughs> around. Um, and yeah, we have done two two podcasts this week, and we've still got more to talk about. So, yeah, uh, we've oh, still yeah, got stuff uh, to come back to. Very a target rich environment indeed. <laughs> but Sam, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a great Pleasure. podcast as ever, and thank you for all those listening. That was our latest episode of Booze, Booms, and Busts. I hope you shall be back next week, where we will be back with our next episode. If you do have any topics you'd like us to discuss, do feel free to reach out to us on Twitter and send us a message. It's just at Booze Booms Busts. But that's all for now. We'll see you next time. Have a good one.